Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a markets reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team here at Bloomberg. This week on the show, we're going to do something a little bit different and split it up into two parts. First, of course, we'll hit on the markets. The 2019 rally that was so strong finally hit a snag as U.S.-China trade fears came back to the fore in force, too. But also this week, Uber eyed going public in what you could call a pretty stormy stock market. Right, Sarah. And luckily, we have two very distinguished guests to talk us all through it. Uh, First off, we have David Joy, who's the chief strategist at Ameriprise Financial. Sarah, he's kind of a rookie in this uh, line of work, though. He's uh, only a couple months, right, David? Yeah, that's right. Um, A couple of months in 42 years. (laughs) (laughs) Rookie rookie by our book. (laughs) And another Boston guy. I feel like we have too many Boston people on this show. Switch it up. I'm going to say, but so don't bring up the Celtics performance in the playoffs, (laughs) whatever you do. (laughs) Yeah, please. Thank you very much for ignoring that. (laughs) And also joining us are... uh, uh, IPO guru at from Renaissance Capital, uh, principal there, Kathy Smith. Hi, Kathy. Uh, please tell me you're not a Celtics fan, too. Oh, not at all. Okay. No, I'm a New Yorker. Oh, good. Good. We like that. Breathe right. a sigh of relief. <laughs> As a Philadelphia 76ers fan, I, I cannot stand two Celtics fans at one time. So this was going to work out good. Well, David, let's start with you. I think uh, you had the best quote I've seen this week in your commentary when you talked about President Trump tweeting over the weekend about a new round of, of tariffs uh, on China. You called it, quote, a skunk in the garden party. <laughs> <laughs> How long do you expect the skunk to linger around? Is this, uh, are, are, are trade tensions, are we going to be watching these headlines all day, every day in the near future? What's your thinking on the, the trade tensions now? Well, I do think it's an issue that's going to be with us for a long, long time. And by that, I mean months and maybe more likely years. Uh, I don't think uh, this is a, a an issue that lends itself to uh, relatively short-term negotiations. Uh, obviously, the issue for markets in the immediate term is, uh, you know, can we get beyond some of the threats to increase tariffs and uh, uh, kind of poison the well of the negotiations, which up until now... Uh, we've been told have been progressing, uh, you know, rather nicely. Uh, but all of a sudden, uh, that was called into question uh, with the president's uh, tweets uh, recently. And so, uh, we'll see what happens with that in just the uh, hours ahead. But even if we get beyond, uh, you know, this uh, immediate hurdle, uh, this is an issue I think that's going to be with us for a long, long time because we have two very different uh, economic systems. We have. Uh, competing interests, and uh, this is not going to go away. 
I'll break down some of the numbers. So when President Trump tweeted on Sunday, he threatened that the tariff rate, now 10%, would move to 25% on the $200 billion worth of goods. He also threatened that potentially in the near future, we could see $325 billion more worth of inputs, see tariffs placed on top of them. Now, David, I want to ask you, because I've seen a lot of economists come out in the past week saying the likes of J.P. Morgan, that this would only shave off about two-tenths of a percentage point of GDP for the year. Moody's did say for 2020 it would be closer to about eight-tenths of a percentage point. So if it's not just the economy that is really becoming worrisome, if this is what happens, where really is the worry for the stock market? Well, I think we have to begin with the economy. And, uh, you know, I think everybody sort of has in the back of their mind that we're doing really well. We grew at 3.2% in the first quarter. But uh, that was uh, partly attributable to things that are not going to be repeated, including inventory uh, building. Uh, the underlying growth rate in the U.S. economy is probably close to somewhere to 2%, maybe two and a quarter. And if we were to uh, shave uh, eight-tenths of a percent off of that, or in our own view, a full-year impact would be closer to six-tenths, that gets you to a fairly sluggish rate of growth. So this is an important issue in, in economic terms. It's also important for market sentiment. If you think about corporate uh, management's decision-making process for strategy and investment, what happens with trade has an immediate impact on their long-term thinking. And uh, if we uh, you know, we're saddled with this uncertainty, and it lingers for, for as long as I think it may, uh, those corporate uh, capital investment decisions are going to be postponed. In addition to that, there are costs associated with trying to uh, offset uh, some of these tariffs by changing supply lines and the like. It's really, in a way, uh, just a tremendous uncertainty in, in the business community. And then thirdly, I would say market sentiment. If we don't resolve you know, this uh, current impasse and uh, we don't resume at least a cordial negotiation, uh, that's going to weigh on investor sentiment. And uh, my guess is it probably takes a little bit of um, uh, steam out of this market, which has been performing pretty well up until now. So, David, Ameriprise has, what, something like almost $900 billion in client assets, so presumably thousands of clients. I assume a week like this, they all call you at once. Is that, is that pretty <laughs> much the switch, switch we're just lighting up? Well, we like to think that, uh, you know, we've, we encourage our investors to think in the long term and keep their mind on uh, and focus on uh, their long-term investment objectives. But yes, when you, get it, <laughs> when you get a situation like this, they want to know if that means something has changed. And uh, is it a meaningful change? And it, should it have any implications for how they uh, deploy their assets? Uh, I would say so far, the answer for us to that question is no. Uh, going into this week, uh, we had been recommending a relatively neutral position relative to the, you know, any individual's risk tolerance uh, in terms of the primary uh, weightings between stocks and bonds. And uh, so we're not going into this with a, a position of, of uh, being overweighted uh, in, the, in, in terms of equities. And so the, the relative impact on a well-diversified portfolio, at least so far, is fairly minimal. What about within the world of equities when you look at the likes of the United States versus China or other emerging market countries? Where can we really expect to see the most pain should this just continue to go on? Well, uh, trade is uh, uh, more important to China than it is to the U.S. Uh, it's an important component of our own economy, but uh, in relative terms, relative to GDP, it's much more important to China. 
the IMF this week came out with an estimate that a uh, full year of uh, uh, the maximum uh, tariffs would uh, shave maybe up to 1.5% off of China's GDP on an annual basis. Uh, so uh, just in terms of those two economies, uh, China is clearly at a disadvantage. But in addition to that, a number of emerging uh, markets would also come under pressure in our view. Just in the Pacific Rim, for example, if you look at uh, what percent of exports from South Korea and uh, Taiwan go to China, it's up in the 30% range. So uh, if their economy slows, uh, those economies are going to take a hit. And then lastly, uh, to the extent that uh, the Chinese economy uh, loses some steam, that's going to hit some of these uh, commodity exporting economies, particularly in Latin America, for example, that uh, you know export base metals and things like that to China. So I would say uh, in relative terms, the U.S. is fairly well positioned to uh, engage in this battle. It will hit us, but in relative terms, uh, the emerging economies of the world will take it, take it uh, more severely. And then lastly, some of the economies in Europe, in particular Germany, are heavily dependent on exports to China, particularly automobiles. And if they slow down in China, uh, that's going to make it awfully difficult for uh, uh, Europe and Germany in particular to gain some traction. And, and they're growing pretty sluggishly right now. So, David, uh, people looking for a safe haven uh, at times like the, these, um, obviously, they're going to look probably first at the Treasury market. But this week, there was an auction uh, of 10-year notes that was a little weak. The bid to cover was was very low. There's been a lot of speculation that maybe China uh, boycotted this auction. I don't think anyone knows for sure. But are treasuries still a haven or is there that sort of lingering in the back of your mind risk that China could could just say, you know what, we're not coming to the auctions and we're going to start selling down? Uh, is there a risk to treasuries, do you think? I think that that, that may be uh, a potential risk. I wouldn't uh, ascribe too much weight to it. Uh, but I do think it's important to have a, a, a full complement of fixed income investments Recently, over the last several quarters in our, our own asset allocation meetings, we've been increasing our allocations to the fixed income market, not so much in treasuries. It's been more in the uh, corporate investment grade uh, universe, and we still have some uh, exposure uh, to high yield as long as the economy is good and default rates are low. So we prefer the credit markets to treasuries. But if you lump them all together, it's important, I think, to have uh, a good diversification in bonds. And then as far as equities go, uh, we have overweights in three sectors right now only, and they're typically considered to be somewhat defensive because of their bond-like characteristics. And these would be real estate and uh, a more uh, typically defensive category, uh, health care, which has started off this quarter pretty weak, but it's come back a little bit, thankfully. Uh, some of that uh, political risk recedes. And then the third one is energy, which is, is really under pressure right now. Uh, so we'll see what happens with that. But if we get a resolution to this most recent you know, bump in the in trade negotiations, I think that uh, market sentiment could improve fairly quickly, and we might see uh, the equity markets outperform and go back to their previous highs that we saw at the end of last week. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the credit markets. Um, I feel like for years, people have been bracing for this turn in the credit markets and the deterioration in credit quality. Um, you don't sound like you're too worried about that. What what would make you worry about that? Would it uh, an earnings recession for for example? Would that do it? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, and the reason is, I think an earnings recession uh, to me has to be put into context. If we were to get it, we're, and we're not expecting one, by the way, but if we were to get it, it would be in the context of extraordinarily unique comparisons to last year because the 
impact of the tax cut. So uh, we're not too worried about the prospects for that. But I think what would be more worrisome would be if we saw uh, credit availability start to tighten. Uh, and that would give us uh, a little bit more of a, a belief that uh, the credit cycle was starting to come to an end. We're not there yet. Credit is still quite available, and the price of it, the cost of it, is also you know, quite accommodative. So and not until the credit cycle really starts to change uh, and tighten. Would, and, and this speaks also to this economic expansion. I think a number of people have said repeatedly, gee, we must be in the seventh or eighth inning. Well, we don't know what inning we're in, quite frankly, because with an underlying growth rate of, let's call it 2%, and accommodative interest rates and a Fed that's on pause, uh, this cycle could be extended for a lot longer, and we might not have to worry about uh, uh, high-yield credit coming under pressure. When a Red Sox fan doesn't know what inning you're you're in, you gotta you <laughs> That's gotta an wonder. Issue. Right? <laughs> but he's so optimistic for now; he could go on for longer over time. Um, but David, we'll have to leave it there for now. But you'll be back on later in the show to discuss Mike's favorite segment, which is it's the craziest thing I ever saw in markets. Parentheses this week. countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now we want to switch it over to you, Kathy, because, yes, stock market was a little bit awry this week, you could call it. But also, as everyone has been eyeing, is the company Uber. Uber eyeing going public this week. But you guys over at Renaissance Capital do tons of research on IPOs. And we have all heard how this year is going to be a record for issuance. But why don't you actually walk us through the numbers? How does this year stack up to years prior? Sure. And um, besides research, which is means that we care about the buy side of the equation with IPOs, we also manage IPO ETFs and their baskets of duly public companies. So we really care that IPOs are priced right and trade well when they enter into the market. So we have seen very good performance of the IPO market so far this year. And because of that, the IPO volumes, we are, are very large now. We're getting some very large companies tap the market, uh, notably Uber, Lyft, TradeWeb, Pinterest, Zoom. And that is going to continue. And we project that given the size of these companies and how mature they are that are trying to tap the market now, we're estimating we could get more dollar volume raised than we did during the uh, internet bubble in 99-2000, when in those years, $92 billion and $97 billion were raised in each year, uh, respectively. So we're expecting a big IPO market in terms of volume, as you mentioned. And uh, the only way that continues is the returns have to be good. And the returns so far, uh, as measured by our ETF, which tracks an IPO, our IPO index, 
They're up about 32% so far this year. So investors are happy when they have good returns, and that means the IPO engine will continue. Kathy, I'm curious why they're all coming at once. Um, You know, it it sort of makes people nervous to see this much supply of new stock coming into the market all at once. Is it just basically a a coincidence um, uh, that all these companies are are going public at once? Or what's your thinking on why uh, such a big pipeline this year? Basically, if you look at this uh, class of companies trying to tap the market, the private companies, they are, many of them are 10 years, have been funded for 10 years or more. And once you get to that time frame where you're private and you're in a venture portfolio, you're the limited partners of that portfolio, they, they want to retire that, that part, partnership. It's been outstanding much longer than would be normal. I mean, typically those partnerships would only go five or seven years. So they've been incubating way too long is number one. And then number two, when I believe many of these companies would have liked to tap the market in 2018 and uh, didn't get a chance because when we got to the latter half of 2018, the market just uh, pretty much closed for IPOs. So this is about tapping the market when the market's good. IPO, the IPO market's not always open. As you just mentioned, the IPO market is not always opened. And you also described your Renaissance IPO ETF up more than 30% this year. The rush that we're seeing now, is it more so that the market is open, the market is ripe for public issuance for newly public companies? Or is it more so possibly that companies want to get out before anything potentially goes wrong in the next year, next two years, whatever it may be? It's a combination, but I wouldn't say it's, oh, gosh, they're bailing out uh, that view. I would just say that they they need to provide to get into a more liquid state. It's it, No one stays private or uh, as a venture-funded uh, company forever. It just doesn't happen. And then regarding the returns on the index, you know, the IPO market doesn't work unless investors make money. So the the ETF is telling you that investors have made money in the basket of the last of the recent IPOs. That's what is in the this uh, ETF. And so that means that investors are more likely to be looking at a new one if they're making money in the ones that have come out. So that's the equation that we need and you can look at that ETF if you're a company trying to raise capital and say, yeah, I mean if investors are making money must be a good time. When the ETF is not performing well, the IPO market starts to shut down because you need to make money. It's all about performance, which really leads to how you price these like major IPOs. I mean, it's very important that the pricing of the IPOs do not end up the way Lyft ended up. And that is you want to price your IPO so that it trades positively after uh, your first day of trading so that there are returns for investors. Now, I think a lot of people are assuming that the Lyft pricing, you know, is a little rich um, and most likely would affect the valuation of, of Uber. Is it having any other ripple effects? Is it, uh, you know, going to cause some valuation problems with many of the other companies going public? Or is it just basically Uber that has to worry about their, the Lyft issues? Actually, we look at events like the Lyft IPO and the, uh, the IPOs that don't trade well. If they're... Um, not so many of them, you know, if it's fewer, fewer rather than many, it provides a certain uh, discipline in the IPO market that's really favorable for returns for investors. You don't want investors to think that it's, you know, every IPO will go up. You need to have a little bit of market of fear in the market that 
makes investors a lot more disciplined about what they'll pay for IPO. So it's not a bad thing to see these kinds of failures. You just don't want to see it the failure happening with every company in a big market downturn. Yeah, that's always the question around here is when an IPO, a big IPO hits, how do you gauge, was it successfully priced? You know, is it, is a 30% share gain on the first day, is that considered uh, a, a, a bad IPO? Or do you like to see that type of, of uh, return on the first day? Well, actually, um, too many people celebrate, especially the ones on the sell side, a very big first day pop, but it makes investors who are trying to buy positions uh, more cautious because it's a lot more expensive if, if it has a really big first day pop. So I'll try to put it into perspective. You know, the average first day pop typically for IPOs is about 13 to 15%. So that means that, you know, investors, when they price an IPO, the valuation should be discounted by about 13 to 15% to get that first day of trading uh, to be that, that way. In other words, you're offering a discount for these early investors, and then uh, it'll, it should be floated in the market at a reasonable price. Uh, on certain companies that are high growth or whatever that may have uh, more upside, you, know, you may see a bigger discount and see that kind of uh, early trading. But I think the ideal is about 13 to 15% on average. You don't want it to be so high that you can't make money afterward. So, for example, during the Internet bubble, which was the anomaly here, the first day pop on in 99 and 2000, respectively, was between 50 and 70% on average. Just an unsustainable number. And that, you know, the market really um, fell apart after that. Like, once these stocks could not, they couldn't be valued right. People, it was a crazy time. But as I say, beside that time, the average is the 13 to 15. And if you have a really big one that has a big one, it better have earnings in its back pocket to provide those who come in later with some uh, returns. When it comes to Uber, I mean, Uber talking about coming out in the public markets this week, how reminiscent can it be of Lyft or how closely can you tie the two into one another? Because I've heard many analysts saying that Investors are in wait-and-see mode. They don't want to buy Lyft because they want to buy shares of Uber. Can the two be connected, and is there potentially a lot of hype surrounding Uber right now? Well, uh, there definitely is a lot of hype surrounding Uber. I mean, I think there are more people that own the stock already of Uber than those of us who are on the other side of that equation. <laughs> um, and I think that um, Uber and Lyft are definitely connected from a valuation standpoint, Lyft's valuation and its multiples are going to be uh, translated into the multiples for Uber, even though we're going to give Uber credit for other things. But remember, you know, Uber's growth isn't the same as Lyft. So there's some other things, you know, it's a little more complex in the valuation. But the point is that the multiples for Lyft are going to translate over into Uber. The other thing about Uber that makes it a little bit different is it is a much bigger IPO than Lyft. And really large IPOs historically take a little extra effort to get to, into the marketplace sort of elegantly, shall I say. So you just have to look at the really large ones that have been done in the past, like Facebook or Google, and you'll see that sometimes it's a little rocky, their entrance into the market, just because they're so big. And remember, Uber has so many already shareholders. It's had so many rounds of financing so many uh, wealth, uh, you know, pools of money that have gone into it, they have to find a whole new set of a bunch of people that haven't, don't own the shares 
to come in here and and buy, uh, you know, put in indications. So it's a big job to uh, get uh, holders. And then last but not least, when we look at the uh, losses that Uber has, and we went back to our data to look at, you know, who are the, what IPOs have lost more money than in, in history at the time of their IPO had larger losses. And if you look at Uber's losses, they're the number one money losing IPO on that list ever. The number two company is Lyft. The no, number four company is Snap. Groupon's in there. And this list of companies, like the top 10 that we put together, if you look at where they're trading from their IPO, they're trading poorly. The very large money losing companies uh, have a hard time, investors have a hard time valuing them. So once the hype wears off, you know, you have to really figure out what's going to happen between now and in the future when they earn money. That's And so it, it, they're often problematic for investors when there's that much money being lost. And we have some history to show it. And especially with Uber, I mean, it is a massive IPO, but they're really only selling, what, about 10% of the of the company. Um, how nervous should investors be about the rest of those private shareholders when they will want to dump their stakes. Um, is, that a, is that a big concern with a, a company that size going public? Of course, uh, investors are, are concerned. And I'll add another thing about Uber. Uh, you know, in the over-allotment option, the shares that would be delivered, should they exercise the over-allotment option, are coming from existing investors. So to me, that's not a good look for Uber to have their insiders selling, especially because Uber is losing a lot of money. And it sh- should be raising money for itself. The existing investors can wait or should wait. Well, Kathy, thank you so much. That's great insight on all the unicorn IPOs coming this year. Uh, Kathy, I can't let you go until you participate in a tradition here on the podcast. And that is sharing the craziest thing you ever saw in markets this week. Have, have you noticed, Have you seen anything crazy you can, you can tell us about? I have. Uh, you know, there's a company that's uh, on the agenda to go public called Luckin Coffee. And it's the fastest growing coffee um, network in China. And it looks like it'll be, it's the number two now, it looks like it'll be bigger than Starbucks. Wow. And it's amazing to see uh, the information about that. I, I was amazed to see in their roadshow that the Chinese uh, drink coffee on the per capita, uh, only um, one cup every two months <laughs> compared to Americans who drink one cup a day. We're caffeine crazy. Yes. And, 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 yes. and yet they're but, still going to be the biggest coffee. <laughs> so I, I will say the total available market for luck and coffee is pretty darn big. If you think that as soon as the Chinese get a taste of that fresh brewed roasted coffee, they're not going to drink tea anymore. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good contender for this week. All right, David, the coffee company in China is going to be tough to beat, but I, I have faith in you that, that you can win this, this week's craziest thing I ever saw in markets this week. What do you got? Well, I have to say that uh, it happened on Sunday. We've already talked about it. And it has to be the president's tweets. Uh, coming into uh, the weekend, uh, the market was feeling pretty good about itself. It was at a new high. The Fed was uh, basically out of the picture. Uh, first quarter corporate earnings uh, coming in much better than expected. We got a great uh, employment number. Everything was looking great. And there was even a rumor in the markets that we were going to get a trade deal by this Friday. 
Uh, and then all of a sudden those tweets came out and it really changed the entire landscape. The skunk of the garden party. I, I still like that one. That's the one. Uh, Sarah, I, what about you? Let's I'm going to take a lead from David and talk about what we saw Monday because it was pretty amazing. I mean, the S&P 500 opened up down about one and a half percent, more than one and a half percent. By the end of the day, we were basically flat. Everyone was saying, oh, yes, the president tweeted, but everything's going to be fine. It won't actually happen. Well, right after the market closed, we had Lighthizer come out and he said, no, it's official. And then we saw what happened on Tuesday and the rest is history. That's, yes, <laughs> it is. All right. These are good, crazy things. I'll, I'll give you mine. Mine's courtesy of Joe Weisenthal's Twitter uh, feed, which if Good place to pull. Yeah, good place to find crazy things in markets. (laughs) You know, notes of future guests. If you're looking, if you're in the market for a crazy thing. So Joe noticed um, the story where $41 million in Bitcoin was stolen from one of these Bitcoin exchanges, uh, Binance, it's called. uh, I believe it's based in Taiwan. Yet another, uh, you know, this super secure, safe, transparent currency, another giant heist, 41 million. But Joe found a guy who said, well, look on the bright side, he said. On, on the plus side, the fee for the transfer was only $68. And that's a testament to Bitcoin's utility as a value transfer mechanism. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave with that. It's a great it, testament. It's, it's a great testament. It really gives me a lot of faith. It's, if you want to steal $41 million in Bitcoin, David, it's only going to cost you 68 bucks. That's not bad. Uh, yeah, it's very efficient capital market. Worth it. Right <laughs> <laughs> David, Kathy, thank you both for joining us today. We really appreciate it. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.